0: And Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the Eping podcast of the Consumer. Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out. In the background is this episode 128 on September 14, 2023, and as always, if you want to buy us a coffee and support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate, where you can uh, donate in uh, your regular euros and dollars, but also cryptocurrency if you so choose. This week, I am joined by uh, my very new colleague, Stephen uh, Kent, who's the uh, uh, media director here at the Consumer Choice Center. And uh, we uh, wanted to give the opportunity to, to for you to get to know Stephen, uh, find out more about what he does here at Consumer Choice Center, and, uh, and yeah, get a bit of a, a, a filling in on uh, sort of the work that Stephen is doing. So, Stephen, good to have you. Bill Wurtz.
1: Nice to be on the podcast. Thank you. So tell us a bit more uh, about you. Where are you from? What do you do? What's your mission here? I'm a North Carolina boy. Uh, I came to work in Washington, D.C. in 2015. I, I was introduced to sort of politics and Really, the idea of government intrusion in markets uh, when I was introduced to this organization called Generation Opportunity, which ended up becoming Americans for Prosperity. But um, in my town of Raleigh, uh, food trucks were being run out of downtown areas. And the local government there was working on behalf of the kind of the Food and Lodging Association, so the restaurants, right, uh, to make food trucks leave the downtown area uh, and do all their vending of services in some obscure parking lot on the other side of town. Um, And they were doing this, of course, in the name of safety and protecting uh you know consumers uh going out to get their lunch or whatever from poorly made truck food and uh, so this was my introduction to politics and organizing and i did a door knocking campaign and i learned the learned the ropes of just talking to people about your right to to choose and so that was it i got interested in politics and policy went to washington dc to work for this organization um, then I moved on to this group called Young Voices, where I learned the ropes of media and became a spokesperson for uh, an organization. That's where you and I got to know each other. And, you know, I worked with you a lot on media. And so, you know, I'm a professional media booker, media trainer, and TV commentator. I like to go and do shows and just talk about the issues.
0: Stephen Kent was interested in politics from a very young age for all the Succession fans understanding uh, understanding the reference there. Um, Stephen, the media landscape in, in the United States... Um, is very different than the European one. It's uh, it's certainly one that is uh, flashier. It's the breaking news, very short segments with guests. Um, why do you think is there um, this this multitude of voices, these split screens?
1: Why, why are Americans so in tune with that type of media? You know, I, I think that people get conditioned to like certain things. And it is absolutely true that... Our elders here in the United States were drawn to a certain kind of dynamic and exciting television. I mean, when you think about what makes CNN and Fox work, it's these breaking news, you know, uh, banners that they put up on the screen. It's a bunch of faces all in these different boxes on the television, all yelling at each other. And at a certain point in time, that might have been novel and interesting. Uh, But, you know, as people change and consumers' preferences change... You've seen uh, uh, people flock to internet-based television shows now. They want alternative sources of information. They want longer-form discussion. It might have been the case that people used to like watching five-minute shouting matches on CNN and Fox, and some people still do, but a lot of consumers now go online and are looking for hour-long conversations uh, between well-intentioned and genuine individuals who are concerned about the issues. That's why Joe Rogan is so popular. It's It's just three hours of just talking uh, and shooting the. Am I allowed to say shit?
0: <laughs> you can. You you may swear on this. Podcast. And
1: shooting the shit uh, on these podcasts. Um, so media preferences change, but at its core, you know, Roger Ailes, who built up the Fox News empire, knew something about human nature and what keeps people's attention. Uh, everything from the wardrobe to the lighting to the way that sets look on cable news—it's all made with people's revealed preferences in mind, because this is something that you talk a lot about in your work and that we do at the Consumer Choice Center, but people will tell you that they want something, but they actually want something else. Uh, They might tell you they want balanced and nuanced conversation between, you know, really smart individuals, but then they guzzle MSNBC and CNN, you know, (laughs) like it's going out of style, because there's another thing that people also want, that they're not willing to say when they're asked, which is that they want someone to tell them that they're right. Uh, And those outlets are willing to do that. How do you see... Are there any
0: blatant statements, blanket statements that we can make about the media landscape today? Because you say there are long-form podcasts with three hours that people listen to, but then when they scroll on social media, the video shouldn't be longer than 20 seconds. Um, we have, we still have the old-fashioned news segments um, of, you know, the uh, 60 minutes. That still exists. You, we, we have the split screens where people all talk at the same time. All of these things exist at the same time. Are there any statements we can we can now make about media that you know would still ring true?
1: Yeah, I think there's something that my dad told me when I first got started doing media commentary back around 2017. Uh, I got my first cable news appearance uh, based on an article that I wrote having to do with a controversy in Hollywood. And I was going to be on Fox News. I went and I did the interview. It was super interesting and fun. And my dad gave me a piece of advice when I got off air because my dad was a broadcaster in the uh, late 80s, early 90s for WRAL television in the Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina area. He was a political broadcaster and he did a little bit of weather. So every now and then he'd go to a political convention and then also a hurricane. uh, And the same couple of months which you know they're kind of the same thing anyways but uh, his advice to me was this son uh, my station manager when I first started this business told me this and I'm going to tell it to you the audience decides in 14 seconds whether or not they hate you Uh, and it doesn't matter what you've said it matters how you said it and it matters how you look So the lesson there is that impressions are formed very, very quickly by visual creatures, which human beings absolutely are. They are looking at you on the television screen, how you sit, how you speak, whether or not you speak with your lungs versus whether or not you speak in your your throat with a gravelly voice like this. Um, And they form an impression and an opinion about you. And once the negative impression has been set, it is hard to shake. It really, really is. People will change the channel if they don't like looking at you. And I learned that when I was you know, doing media booking as well. Uh, the producers for major television networks would tell me, your guest lost us viewers because they see it in real time. When your guest or your your person is on television, the producers are watching their viewership numbers go up and down in real time. And it is the case that if someone is annoying, they ch- the audience changes the channel. <laughs> and so that's something to be cognizant right. of. Um, but, you know, look, people are fickle. And you have to work on those first impressions. It's very important. So... It is true that people like three-hour podcasts, but there's another reason why they like short bite content on Instagram and TikTok, which is they just want to hear what you have to say quickly.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think the the, the struggle is then those short segments, it's really hard to really talk about in-depth policy. And that's something we do at Consumer Choice Centers. We want to we want to bring up all these uh, consumer short choice uh, issues, talk about policy. In, in, in specific. I, I remember when I was on... Um, um uh when i was on on canadian television talking about aspartame these are such complicated long discussions we'd have to have about the institutions the agencies the scientific bodies that analyze this uh these chemical compounds and it's really hard to press that into a five minute segment because you always feel like you didn't say enough because you're really into the topic but then it's really hard to get that across to uh to an audience um and, and and I think that's probably the challenge of your work to try and get us on uh, on media, because some of this sounds a bit niche, even though it affects consumers more directly than any hearing or investigation into the former president would have. Mm-hmm. And people have a tendency of, um, you know, removing themselves too much into the sort of the, the, the political game, because that is flashier. But the things that, that, that affect them on a the day to day are a bit harder to harder to pitch. I assume that's probably uh, that's probably something you see and sort of you know how do I how do I get any producer interested in yeah. the sugar tax or whether swimming pools are available? You know these
1: things. Yeah, you, you got to be able to make the connections to the things that people care about in their everyday lives. Um, over at the Blaze, uh, Glenn Beck, who used to be at Fox News, one of their slogans is uh, "Enlightenment mixed with entertainment." And, you know, that's kind of what people come to these things for, you know, as a podcast junkie myself, I listen to shows that are enjoyable to listen to. So the production quality has to be good. I don't want to hear slamming doors, cats meowing. I don't want to hear like echoey rooms. I I want to be able to listen to it and relax while I'm doing some work or I'm working out or cooking food. This is a big part of, you know, the, the routines of audio audio listeners and you also want to enjoy the voices of the people who are on there so it's again it's like important for communicators to be trained in how not to use vocal fry how to speak with their whole voice how to not use filler words and annoy the crap out of people with uhs and ums and likes and stuff like that you need to practice these things so I think that that is really what matters I'm a I'm a show business person and I try to use those skills for for good ends at you know advocacy organizations like a consumer choice center just be aware of what makes people want to listen the average listener of any show they just want to say something smart over dinner in a couple of hours when they go see their friends or family and so you're trying to give them something that they can share that they want to talk to people about. There are, of course, policy junkies who really want to learn. And when you're talking, they want to hear every angle of it. They want to understand the policy in a way they never have before. But a lot of folks want to be entertained, and they want to take away one nugget at the end of that conversation.
0: And that is fantastic advice for all the uh, for all the people listening who might be interested in eventually appearing on a, uh, on a program uh, as well. Do you sometimes catch yourself... Um, applying some of what you do in your work at home that you, you know, you answer a question uh, to your wife, and then you, you end up a bit uh, into a sort of a 20 minute, a 20 second answer segment that you would do on TV? Does that happen to you? I,
1: I definitely do correct my daughter on her us and her ums, and you know, her <laughs> likes and, and there are days when she doesn't have the patience for it. She's 12, just about 13. And I will try to correct her on those, and then I will immediately mess up myself. I, I still use filler words, and it's something that you have to constantly fight. But as a speech coach and media trainer, it's something that I, I know is really valuable if you have somebody in your life who is just helping you clean up your speech and your presentation in little ways. And you know, I can say that I feel like my family you know, speaks well and all that kind of stuff, and I love that. But I do find myself bringing that into my house uh, on occasion.
0: And are those, are there still instances where um, all of the advice goes out the window because the the personality of the personality that is on TV on the program is just so unique? I mean, you look at somebody like IRFK. Um, who you know has because of his health this, a bad voice. I mean, right. you can clearly say that it's it's it, especially at the beginning. It's hard to What's listen. What's the condition
1: to him. that he has? Um,
0: it's it's I, I don't know exactly what it's called. I would mess it up on on on, on this show, but it's it, it's something that makes his voice very. For, for the listeners who don't know, uh, this is um, uh, Robert F. Uh, Kennedy Jr., who is running for president in the yeah. Democratic. Uh, party and and it's 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 scratchy as if he ha- as if he has a throat ache or something and it makes it it makes it makes it hard to listen and yet so many people will listen to a two-hour segment with him it's and
1: called spasmodic dysphonia oh right it's like a chronic neurological voice disorder and it it just degrades the quality of your your vocal cords
0: yeah try saying that three times very fast that's uh <laughs> that's a tough one um and or, or just take someone like Donald Trump, who has a you know uh, a very two three syllable uh, word vocabulary, and and is you know repeats himself. He has the himself. best
1: vocabulary, many people say. <laughs>
0: you do him very well. Uh, it, it's very self aggrandizing, and and yet people want to listen to him, not just because he's important, but because you know he says just ridiculous things. Um, so so. Uh, Can somebody learn to become unique or do you just have to be that type of person to be appealing to an audience?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I I don't know. I mean, why why is it that our world leaders and the most interesting people in the world also tend to make for really great SNL impersonations on, (laughs) on Saturday Night Live? You know, like famous people, people who rise to prominence and power in media, in politics, they are interesting and unique in just enough of a way that a Saturday Night Live actor in New York City can figure out that one thing that's really interesting about the way they talk and all that kind of stuff, or the hand motions. So everybody's got their thing. You know, Obama has his thing. I I know immediately, like one of his ticks. You know, he puts his hand out with his thumb every time he's speaking. And that's like his authoritative way of delivering a message. And of course, if you are doing a mockery a mockery of Obama or a skit, that's what you have to do. So look, I think people have to lean into their strengths, but they also have to be aware that enjoyers of entertainment tend to have a couple of red lines, uh, which is that they want you to try and at least speak in a way that's intelligible, interesting, or memorable.
0: Right. And um, just to just to extrapolate very briefly for the European audience, before we talk about sort of the the, the essence of consumer choice and what we're trying to do at Consumer Choice Center is. Um I'm sure you you follow uh, a fair amount of European media. Um, you know the, the 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 differences must be quite striking. A BBC news segment is delivered fairly differently. Very calm voice. No matter how big the catastrophe, uh, it will be uh, it will be delivered fairly fairly differently <laughs> as to the yeah. breaking news where everything explodes at the same time on the screen. Um, do you make value judgments on that? Do you say like, ah, oh, if, if if only if only all media could would sound like PBS, um, it, it, we would we would have less of a polarized society.
1: No, I think the the polarized society pre-exists the the polarized media. The media exists to serve the desire for polarized content. Uh, the media look at the the kind of opinions that people have, the divisions that exist in society, and they adjust accordingly. I really don't believe that the media creates the the polarization; they just feed off of it uh, and become even more powerful. Uh, I don't I don't know much about about kind of the way in which European broadcasters speak, but like you are saying, it's sort of matter of fact, and I enjoy listening to that type of content. I prefer listening to NPR, sort of an American radio style that is very I don't know. I consider it British by nature. It's just it's like a librarian is speaking to you during Very the broadcast so. and I I enjoy it. But I also as a media person myself, I have a couple of different modes and it's it's funny because I I once did a Fox News interview back to back with an NPR interview and it was, you know, I switched Modes immediately from speaking in a loud, fast, you know, sort of spunky manner. Cause like you're doing a Fox TV interview, you've got to keep people engaged. But then I turned off my Zoom and then I switched over to a radio interview for NPR and I spoke like this.
0: That is, that's a quality. That's a <laughs> you know? talent you and, have.
1: And yet, and you go through the entire interview almost like you're trying to put the audience to sleep with a, a glass of tea and a blanket, you know? But that's that's how you do this. Um, and each mode of entertainment and, and media is different.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've had listeners tell me that they do fall asleep to this podcast, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, no, I, I think that's,
1: that's okay. Because you can't fall asleep to something that's annoying the crap out of you. That's fair. That <laughs> you is know, fair. if it's enjoyable... It can put you to sleep. My favorite music uh, that I always listen to on an airplane is like this, you know, metal band, right? Um, And the album puts me to sleep. It's loud, blaring guitars and like screaming. But I fall asleep because it's it's comforting. I enjoy it. (laughs) And so if someone's falling asleep during your podcast, I don't find that to be an insult. It means that, you know, they're chill. You
0: know? I, I, I do appreciate that. And, and what, what is what is also interesting is how language this is maybe an interesting nugget that I like to talk about on the podcast um, of information on a, on a on a talk show in France everyone will speak at the same time. That is, everyone talks over each other. That is very normal. In Germany, that doesn't really happen as much. And there's actually a language difference in there. In, in German, the verb is at the very end of the sentence. So you might get a bit of a surprise when you think you know how the sentence ends, but at the very end of the sentence, the verb shows up and that will change the entire direction. So you have to you let have people... To yeah. You have to wait until the end of the sentence. While in French, that is not the case. So it's easy to interrupt because you, sort of, you, you can make an assumption as to how the sentence is going to end. See,
1: that's such an interesting little little tidbit i feel like i learned something today that i will share at dinner later and it will make me feel smart you know
0: there we go there we go now we have the highlight for the uh, for all the for all the uh, the people on x uh, that get the that yeah. get the two minute clip um so uh i want to talk about uh, the, the the mission that we have at consumer yeah. choice center which is to increase choices for consumers by in- by increasing uh, competition on the marketplace so that you have the best quality products at the lowest price and available as often as you as you would like um it seems that uh to some people there is a political implication to uh, to that like either they think it's a it's a it's a left-wing idea because we're trying to legalize things that you know mm-hmm. just uh, uh conservative people would disagree with and then it's a right-wing idea because it, it you know that's a that's a free market principle and that is contrary to, to what some people think. how um, what's been your response when you when you when you talk about consumer choice is, is in, in the US? Is there is there an implication that it's either right or left wing or where do we where do we fare on that on the political political spectrum? Yeah,
1: the consumer choice as a buzzword is typically considered to be in the I wouldn't say like right wing, but sort of conservative orbit of American politics and discourse. Democrats and liberals don't use the language of consumer choice they will usually use the the language of of freedom in that context and lifestyle freedom but that's also that something that consumer choice center leans right into which is lifestyle choice and freedom and giving people the ability to make free decisions for themselves about the substances that they use that Bring them enjoyment, satisfaction, and community with other people. So, you know, that can be marijuana, it can be alcohol policies. But you know, America is a very, very large country with a patchwork of very, very strange states. And, you know, what is conservative in one state is is not going to be the case, even if they're both Republican-led. You know, North Carolina is purple, so it's it's Democrat and Republican. It's very, very mixed, but it is a conservative state in its bones. However, This same state also still has a lot of blue laws in place that, you know, prevent you from getting a beer or or alcohol on a Sunday and that kind of thing. But at the same time, they might legalize gambling because it's a, a free market and free choice issue. So, you know, people's values collide in all sorts of interesting ways. But what it comes down to at the end of the day is do you believe in people to make decisions for themselves or do you think that it is your job to make decisions for them in their best interests?
0: And so this is something I wanted to bring up because I remember a couple of years ago when I was when I was starting to write uh, for Consumer Choice Center is uh, I believe the name is Cass Sun- Sunstein.
1: Cass Sunstein, the uh, nudge, right?
0: Precisely. Yeah. Who I believe used to be an advisor for uh, President Obama as yes, well, that's right. and he writes in, in in his book books I should rather say that. Um, the whole aspect of marketing essentially distorts the idea that consumers make free choices you you are bombarded with advertising whether that's on youtube or listening to a podcast if you're not uh, if you're not on any of the premium services for podcasting um that you are so influenced by the way that your products are packaged the way it's presented um that ultimately you you're predetermined to buy certain things in the Mm -hmm. supermarket before you even walk in and um Thus, the government is justified in setting regulations on when you can buy it so that you don't buy it at the wrong time when you maybe, I don't know, you just come from the bar and and you don't really want to eat a kebab. It's not good for you. But now you're under the influence and the marketing has told you that this is what you have to do after a long night out or you buy this type of cereal because you've seen one too many ads. Um, what, What do you think is a good way to respond to the argument that marketing makes us mindless
1: consumers? You know, marketing, I think, tends to respond to pre-existing conditions, things that people who are artsy and involved in marketing already know about their friends, neighbors, families, and the things that make them tick. They're speaking to something that people want but aren't willing to say. I did a little bit of time working in the polling industry, and what they'll tell you a lot is that, you know, if you call a home and ask them, Hey, you know, Joe Schmo, who are you going to be voting for? They're not going to just automatically tell you the truth. They're going to, A, they're going to say something that makes them feel respectable to the person on the other side of the phone. They might lie to you, and they've never met you before in them in their lives. They're never going to meet you, but they want to make you happy, so they want to say what you might want to hear. Or their wife might ne- be nearby, and they're not going to say who they're actually voting for in the presence of their spouse. So, you know, people do all sorts of strange and weird Weird things based on conflicting incentives, which is to say that consumer choice advocates tend to believe that people are complicated and that the kinds of decisions they make are so multifaceted and influenced by so many factors, you cannot truly predict behavior. Uh, Liberals, progressives, and opponents of of consumer choice, again, sometimes conservatives in, in the U.S. oppose consumer choice as well, but progressives tend to have a very skeptical view of individual autonomy and freedom. They believe that people are wired or conditioned for certain kinds of behaviors or that they can be rewired for certain behaviors. And there you get the fundamental divide. Do you believe that people are born with free will or do you believe that they are not? I think marketing is more of a mirror. It is not something that nudges you towards a certain outcome.
0: And it would be hard to imagine that you could convince people... To buy something fundamentally different in the first place. I mean, I, I, if you have light bulbs, you are unlikely to supplant them completely with candles, uh, even though some people might be interested in doing that. Uh, at, at a certain level of comfort, uh, there's there's really uh, only so much you can do, and your product quality also has to match what people are anticipating when they go when they go buy it in the first place. Um, what do you identify currently uh, in the United States? Uh, again, you know, we have a largely uh, um, a European audience uh, as the the currently the biggest impacts on, uh, on, on, on consumer choice. Of course, I would assume that, mm-hmm. you know, the dwindling purchasing power is probably one of them, even though Americans have a much larger purchasing power than most Europeans. Uh, but if, if you had to pick uh, maybe one or two different issues where you say this is sort of where there's the most work for us to do here in the United States, um, what would that be?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the most work, but I know the biggest threat, and it is Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission in the United States. So this is a 34-year-old Yale graduate who now leads the most powerful trade commission uh, in the United States and, and has the ability to affect uh, the size and scope of companies and the prices that they might set for consumers. So the FTC in the United States is on a quest. They're about to launch a lawsuit against Amazon to break up Amazon into a bunch of smaller companies. So in the United States, we are faced right now with the incredible pressure of an inflationary, an inflationary economy, high prices, and really, really tough cost of living. And in that environment, Amazon thrives. Amazon provides you incredibly cheap goods at incredibly fast speeds. And people will turn to it because they're feeling that crunch, right? But Biden's FTC here... They believe that Amazon needs to be broken up for the larger good of the economy. That people are making choices and feeding this, you know, this beast the size of Amazon, um, and that it is not a choice that they should be able to make. Antitrust law in the United States has traditionally been the idea that large firms, large companies are fleecing consumers, engaging in illegal or unethical practices to extort consumers with high prices and anti-competitive practices. But Biden's FTC wants to reframe antitrust law and recategorize it as something that is just undesirable economic activity, whether or not it is anti-competitive or bad for consumers. So in their bid to break up Amazon, what they're going to have to face is consumers love Amazon. It's giving them something they want and that they need at this time. And the low prices are part of what makes Amazon so popular. They just believe it shouldn't be popular.
0: Yeah. And and, and I think what is also important to mention is the the, the the very significant effect that Amazon has had on the performance of other um, retailers, uh, it, it it wasn't as important for uh, companies such as as Walmart to have uh, a, a big part in the so the online um, online distribution system. They had to adapt because Amazon was essentially pushing them towards it.
1: Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of talk about how Amazon, you know, supposedly was a threat to the book publishing uh, and and book buying and selling industry. But what we have actually seen over the course of many years is that big booksellers. Barnes & Noble is the the leading one in the United States. Do you have that abroad, by the way, Barnes & Noble? We do not. Okay, yeah, so just if you want a book in any American shopping mall or, or strip shopping area, um, that's going to be Barnes & Noble's. That's a big bookstore. Barnes & Noble's almost went out of business because of Amazon's book-selling marketplace. It's incredibly cheap to get a book on Amazon. It's a wonderful way to get a book. You can find anything, and you can get it usually like half the price of when you go to the mall and get it at Barnes and Nobles. So it almost became impossible to have a book business, a brick-and-mortar book business in the United States, Until the book businesses got smart about why people go to bookstores in the first place. Barnes and Nobles is now in a golden age, a renaissance, where their business is booming and Amazon's booming at the same time. How is that possible? They told us that Amazon was going to kill bookstores, but independent bookstores and major bundlers like Barnes are thriving because they carry less books now. They don't carry every book under the sun that they don't need to. If you want every book under the sun, you go to Amazon, you find it. Do you go to Amazon to browse books, Bill, and look for a book to read? It's a terrible experience. Please tell, yeah, please tell me no, because like, uh, nobody, oh. nobody goes to Amazon to browse. They go to Amazon because they, they need a specific book and they would like it now. But people love bookstores. And so when you go to the mall, And you see an interesting bookshop, either an independent seller or a big bookstore, you go, I want to spend an hour in there. And I want to flip through these books. And so Barnes now carries less books. They curate the books way more carefully. They really keep in mind what they think their audience might want versus carrying everything that they could possibly carry. And now Barnes and Nobles is doing really well. They're building new stores and opening new locations. And independent bookstores are now doing the same thing. Niche independent bookstores that target towards certain audiences feminist bookstores, capitalist bookstores, right wing left-wing bookstores whatever And so when you specialize in any in given industry you can tap into a market but if you try to be everything to everybody you fail.
0: yeah precisely it's, it's very it's very interesting how some some, some industries have adapted there um, We are almost out of time. Um, so, Stephen, I just wanted to to put this to you. Um, uh, often in a job interview, they ask you where you see yourself in five years, but this is rather the question: um, Where do you see consumer choice uh, in in five years? I mean, we have a lot of tendencies right now. Everything from the regulatory threat to uh, to 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 purchasing dwindling purchasing power. Uh, we see this in Europe. We see this just as much in the United States. Um, with technology simultaneously trying to catch up at the same time. We now have delivery robots and, you know, all these new cool services that keep coming up. Tech is getting better by the day. Um, If we had to make an estimate on how those two will fare against each other, is it the case that the government um, and its stringent regulations will never be able to quite catch up to the technological innovation that we're having? Or do you see it a bit more pessimistically and that we'll be in a worse spot uh, five years from now?
1: Well, it is my job to make sure that Consumer Choice Center is visible and, uh, and you know, doing great things in the United States and North America at large. And so in five years, I foresee we will be doing just those things and uh, being a leading voice on consumer choice advocacy here. But, I, you know, I do think that we're about to head toward really dark and difficult times for consumer choice because of the, the pace of technological innovation and change. Uh, I'm excited about technological innovation and change. I think those are good things. They ultimately are good for consumers and people who want to you know, live better lives. But the power of nostalgia and remembering the way that things used to be and the fear and anger that innovation can often stir up creates a backlash in which you know, you, you've got to fight for people's right to choose the kind of products that they want to choose. So, you know, we've just got a, a really big fight ahead of us in this time of a lot of rapid change because there are going to be forces trying to push us ahead. There are going to be people trying to drag us backwards and people trying to stop the sun from setting, if you will. You know, they just don't want things to ever change. And consumer choice advocates like us have to be nimble and ready to, to just dive in there on, on behalf of the consumer at any time we have a lot of work to do where can people find you on the socials yeah i love twitter you can find me on steven underscore kent eight nine and i will say x over my dead body <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's see how long you'll get away with it eventually there will be people who only know x
1: <laughs> it's true then i'll be really i'll, I'll come across as strange but uh steven underscore kent eight nine on uh x the platform formerly known as twitter <laughs> thank
0: you so much, Stephen, for joining the Consumer Podcast. Thank you, Bill. And thank you all for listening to the Consumer Podcast. Please rate us on all the platforms that allow you to do that. And I'll, uh, yeah, we'll hear from you next week on uh, Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody.